Welcome to Let It Roll, Tales from the Tour Bus, where the podcast about how and why popular music happens takes a break to talk about our favorite animated music history show from Mike Judge with hosts Nate Wilcox and Justin Bankston. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. You can now follow us on Twitter, at LetItRollCast, and we'd love to hear what you think, so don't be shy about tweeting at us or commenting on our website. This week, Nate and Justin talk about the fifth episode of Tales from the Tour Bus, featuring legendary outlaw songwriter Billy Joe Shaver. Tales from the Tour Bus can be viewed on Amazon.com if you subscribe to Cinemax. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Hello, I'm Nate Wilcox, host of the Let It Roll podcast. I'm joined once again by Justin Bankson for our obsessive compulsive deep dive discussions into Mike Judge's Tales from the Tour Bus Tonight we're going to talk about the Billy Joe Shaver episode. Justin, welcome back. Hello. I can't wait to talk about Billy Joe, this guy. This man is a character, as we say in Texas. <laughs> Indeed. Yes, and so Billy Joe Shaver, best known as a songwriter, but also a singer, songwriter, and performer, recording artist, uh, even had a major label tenure for a while in the 80s, but best known for writing the virtually the entirety of Waylon Jennings' legendary Honky Tonk Heroes album, and more than a fitting subject for Tales for the Tour Bus. Indeed, he is a Central Texas legend. Yes, and the, and the episode makes it pretty clear why, uh, with musical highlights, uh, a, a poignant childhood story, many uh, ups and downs on the road to legendary status, and, of course, a shooting with Billy Joe on the... Shooting in <laughs> so he's a shooter. He's a shooter. So the basic uh, plot summary is Billy Joe Shaver, born in Central Texas, raised by his grandmother, and this is uh, the the sad part of it. Uh, uh, basically, abandoned by his mother after her after his father nearly uh, kicked the child to death while his mother was pregnant. Uh, then the mother told uh, the grandmother that if it was a girl, she'd stay. If it was a boy, she'd leave. And it was a boy, and she left. So, you know, they don't start the episode with that, though. They start with some some uh, hijinks at the Canadian border, which seems to be a theme with this series. Uh, and, and and they're going to get to it more. But uh, so, so we meet the band. Uh, Rugi Ray LaMontagne is his French harp player who... Uh, Billy Joe describes as this crazy Yankee he hired, uh, Freddie Fletcher on drums, and Dan Puba Miller, uh, uh, the roadie. Uh, so, any thoughts on the on the on the band in the background and how it differs from the previous episodes in the series, Justin? Well, it is. Uh, you know, it's sort of a short episode, and it's sort of uh, you know it's really enjoyable all the way through, but it's also really kind of like low key funny the whole times, but there's not a whole ton of ups and downs. It seems like when they're talking about the bad stuff that happened and they're talking about the good stuff that happened, they're sort of like, you know, uh, it all, it's all enjoyable. The, the tragedy doesn't really come across all that awful. You know, I mean, obviously he had an inauspicious start, 
you know, with no mom or dad, but it seemed like you got raised up okay. And then, you know, <clears throat> all of the, the ups and downs are relatively shenanigansy and fun to hear about. <laughs> it's true. And and I think having Kinky Friedman uh, as the, the teller who relates the most poignant parts uh, takes some of the edge off because of Kinky's inimitable dry humor and wit. And so, uh, yeah, that definitely, definitely softens the blow a little bit. And, and, the the structure of the episode i think does it too because it starts out with a classic sort of tales from the road the the band hiding their stash you know billy joe's going to go across the canadian border and play uh, some gigs in canada so he tells the band you know no drugs and so they they have to pull over right before the border hide their stash of guns and drugs and knives uh and of course they can't remember which mile marker they buried it at then they yeah, backtrack perfect. Yeah, go ahead. It's another... I'm sorry. No, 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 no. Go ahead. Yeah, and it's another great example of uh, the editing and the, the visual uh, style. Like, there's just this great side gag of all this stuff going into this beer box as they're digging out bags of drugs and guns and knives and a belt buckle that's also a knife. And, you know, Brass some knuckles. foreshadowing as, as Billy Joe's pop gun goes in there. Yeah, and some... Maybe somebody had some brass knuckles, or let's throw those in there. <laughs> and it's just such a great visual gag, and they just it's just a great example of what is so entertaining about this show. Yeah, I've, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. This is the funniest thing, I think, that Mike Judge has done since Beavis and Butthead. And it's also some of the best music documentaries ever, which is why we're talking about it on the show. Uh, but the combination of the the animation and the, and the spoken narration... Uh, it lets them tell the stories in a really compelling way. So it's not just talking heads. And it's not just looking at old dudes on screen like a lot of music documentaries. You, the animation lets you go back into the past and, and see the stories as they happen. And the quintessential tale is uh, that they get into pretty early in this episode is, is when they go back in time to Billy as a seven or eight-year-old who walks barefoot along six miles of railroad tracks in a in a coveralls or overalls to go see uh, Homer and Jethro, who are the, the thinking man's hillbillies, and accidentally sees Hank Williams Sr. And and little Billy Joe climbs up on a, a pillar to get away from the crowd who are sniffing on his bare feet and feels like Hank Sr. is singing right to him. And uh, to me, that's the most powerful part of the episode. I mean, it, it's it's you know, it's the origin story of Billy Joe Shaver. It's like being anointed by the Christ himself, you know, the king of country music, uh, passing the torch right on to Billy Joe Shaver. And, and sort of a reminder that this 70s generation of outlaw country singers got to see and know the 50s generation of singers directly, which from the distance of 2019, it's kind of hard to grasp. I mean, you're not going to meet many people these days who actually saw Hank Williams Sr. perform. But Billy Joe Shaver is one of them, and he's still yeah. walking around. So you know that that was powerful, and and uh, it gives him a great. I think one of the challenges in this episode is so Billy Joe Shaver's not known as a great singer. Although I think that's a little unfair. I, I, I've come to know, especially after this episode. I, before I watched this episode, I pretty much only heard his stuff. Aside from a couple of his best-known songs, I'd pretty much known his stuff through cover versions, not just Waylon Jennings, but also Chris Christopherson and Johnny Cash and other people, uh, David Allen Coe. But um, getting 
you know, the Hank Williams cameo is a great excuse to throw in a, a Hank Williams sing and move it on over and, and, and padding out the song selection a little bit, but they start off with Billy Joe singing old five and dimers like me, which is uh, one of his best known songs. It starts the classic honky tonk heroes album by Waylon. Um, and then, and then, you know, after they tell, tell the tale of uh, uh, the, the great anointing by Hank senior, they, then they tell the other part of the origin story, which is how uh, Billy Joe lost I think two or three fingers on his strumming hand. Uh, Not entirely clear. <laughs> at yeah. least two, at least big parts of two fingers are definitely missing. Yeah, and the and the and the you know cartoon Billy Joe waves that hand around quite a bit. And if you've ever seen Billy Joe live, he'll make sure you know uh, that he's lost his fingers as well. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then. Uh, gets into uh you know his nashville apprenticeship and also the sort of arbitrary way i think this is a quintessential moment in the billy joe shaver story is that you know he decides to leave texas he's got to get out of the sawmill and make it as a musician and he goes to hitchhike west his goal is los angeles and you know uh like so many texas musicians who made it out to california ended up making it, but nobody's driving that way so he crosses the road and goes east Next stop, Nashville, and that's where they introduce uh, Bobby Bear. Uh, the uh, I don't know if you'd call him a superstar, but a, a very successful singer songwriter in his own right, who uh, hired Billy Joe uh, to work for a song publishing company. And Bobby Bear tells some of the stories on Billy Joe and his Nashville um, apprenticeship, as it were, including uh, his roommate who liked to hold a knife to his throat uh, and and recite uh, Tennyson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a that was a really funny a really funny sequence and uh, incredibly bizarre. But you you get the feeling it's a hundred percent true. Yeah, yeah, and 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 uh, the whole unreliable narrator nature of this stuff is is definitely explored. I mean, Kinky Friedman comes in early, making a bold claim that you know Billy Joe don't lie and he only tells the truth, but. Uh, Later on, of course, Willie Nelson tells Attorney Dick DeGaron, you know, you can't trust a word that comes out of Billy Joe's mouth. And the uh, Billy Joe's account of the shooting requires Mike Judge to step in and <laughs> present some truth. So it's not quite Johnny Paycheck, but uh, there's there's definitely an unreliable narrator aspect to this episode as well. And um, But the, the story of Hal Bynum... Um, coming in and, and reading the, the Alfred Lord Tennyson charge of the light brigade to him while he held a knife to his throat. And then Billy Joe saying, I don't know why I didn't leave. I guess I liked the poetry. Bobby Bear corrected it. No, I think he liked the knife. I found out a tad cryptic, but. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's definitely an asset. Like it's, it's, it's been a definitely a through line in the whole series is that, you know, that these tales are all, on the tall side, you know, there's a little bit of embroidery that's going on, you know, pretty much at every turn, but that's part of what makes it great. And it's part of the storytelling tradition. If you're a Texas songwriter, you're not going to tell a story to somebody without tarting it up a little bit. I mean, that would just be lazy. Exactly. And, and, you know, Billy Joe definitely knows how to build a myth and a legend and, and, a big part of the Billy Joe legend, and it's pretty much an essential part of any of the 60s era uh, performers, is the LSD conversion experience, which, you know, after a few years of apprenticeship in Nashville, 
and taking plenty of pills. Uh, he goes out, comes back to Austin. Uh, according to Billy Joe, he was supposed to be opening up for the Grateful Dead at the Armadillo World headquarters. According to scholars that I've read about online, there's no record of a gig that listed. You know, there's no posters that show the Grateful Dead and Billy Joe Shaver on the same poster or anything. But be that it is, may Billy Joe's version of the story is he missed the gig, shows up, and the management hands him a roll of toilet paper that was expressly delivered. You know, please give this to Billy Joe. And that was apparently uh, full. Every sheet was was a blotter of Owsley acid. And anybody knows their Grateful Dead mythology, that's August Owsley III, the uh, sound man, and the LSD kingpin who financed the whole Grateful Dead uh, band with his acid profits from the San Francisco scene in the late 60s. And Billy Joe eats a couple of hits of acid and has, you know, this massive conversion experience, is bitten by brown recluse spiders, and then wonders about... Which then dies. The recluse spider does not survive biting Billy Joe. Yes. <laughs> I think... I think that's a warning to anybody who wants to mess with the man, and and then and then uh, and it's not made clear is if or maybe I missed it, but the acid is given to him at the world headquarters, but he's still having an acid experience at one of the early Willie Nelson picnics in Dripping Springs, and that's where he bumps into Waylon Jennings. Uh, wanders into a, a peanut trailer. Billy Joe's having messianic visions, thinks he's Jesus and can heal people. Goes into a peanut-shaped trailer and starts singing his songs. And somebody comes out of the back, and it's Waylon Jennings. Like, who's who wrote them cowboy songs? And, and Billy Joe says, "It's me, my songs." And 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 uh, and then you know that's that's what leads to the fateful Honky Tonk Heroes album where. where Waylon records a whole album of Billy Joe's songs. And anybody who knows anything about the music business knows that the songwriting credits are the most lucrative thing on an album. And for Waylon Jennings to give an entire album or all but one song to one songwriter is basically unknown. I, I mean, that's an incredible statement of confidence in Billy Joe Shaver's songwriting right there. It really is. And it's such like a bizarre turn of fortune, you know, as you said, he's wandering through the hill country, you know, on a half a toilet paper roll of Owsley acid and runs runs into a Waylon Jennings trailer and sings a song. And this leads to Waylon Jennings deciding to cut a whole record of these songs and changing music and setting up Billy Joe to be, you know, essentially able to continue to do what he's doing. Yeah, and and also is a pivotal moment in the whole outlaw country movement because that's the first album by Waylon and the first album by anybody that's definitively outlaw country, and kicks off a whole cultural sea change in Texas and Nashville and around the world, and you know basically sets up Billy Joe for life. Uh, you know, as a paying proposition to have that kind of songwriter royalties on a Waylon Jennings album. Uh, you know, I mean, it wasn't as big a deal when Waylon made the agreement with him as it was as it turned out to be i mean i don't think anybody knew whether it was going to become you know a multi-platinum album selling superstar not that honky tonk heroes was multi-platinum right away but um still you know and, and that's kind of the happy ending and then the rest of the episode they spend 
uh, telling a late in life misadventure uh, that Billy Joe got into outside Waco on his way home uh, from what I believe is his third wedding to a second wife. As they outlined, he married two women in his life, but three both of each. them, yeah, three times each, <laughs> married and divorced. <laughs> and, uh, and this one with the second wife, um, you know, Billy Gibbons. Billy Joe is a true romantic. Yes, clearly. <laughs> and uh, Billy Gibbons of ZZ Top, uh, who apparently presided over the wedding and, as Billy Joe accuses him, perhaps consummated it as well, um, tells the tale of, of, of presiding over the wedding and, you know, tells how he's very touched. Uh, this means a lot. And Billy Joe's, oh, it ain't no big deal. <laughs> I do this all the time. And then after the ceremony, Billy goes to the casino to find the reception and asks where it is. And the, somebody points to the middle of the casino and he's like, what, where? And, and he says, oh, there they are. They're on the floor. And Billy Joe is rolling around on the floor uh, doing Indian leg wrestling and uh, actually breaks his neck uh, doing this. And then that's why uh, he's unavailable and suspects that Billy and uh, – um, is it Brenda, his second wife, Brenda or Wendy? And uh, uh, Wanda. Wanda, my bad. That that Billy, uh, Billy Joe suspects that Billy Gibbons uh, spent the night with Wanda. So they go back to Texas to get divorced. That's where they pull in to the uh, infamous uh, honky tonk, and it goes into what the. Let's pull up my notes and see what the name Papa of the honky Joe's. tonk. Papa Joe's outside Waco, and and as his drummer says. It's not the kind of place you pull in at if you have any sense. <laughs> and, and when you see the photo of it, if you've ever driven from Austin to Dallas, and I've done that 200 times, you see Papa Joe's on the side of the road. It's this big metal building, and it has Papa Joe's painted on the side of it, really huge. And it's obviously not a place you go. It's just clearly, from the highway, you can tell, yeah, I'm not going to go there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is it is definitely rough and ready, but somehow Billy Jonas and Wanda sit down uh, on the way to go home and get divorced, and a gentleman uh, invites himself to their table, and uh, Billy Joe uh, accuses the guy, says that the guy's stirring his stirring drinks with a knife and hitting on Wanda, and uh, and also dissing him. He says he doesn't mind the guy hitting on his wife because we're getting divorced, but uh, he doesn't like him dissing. Him. So he says, why don't you shut the fuck up and look, man, you got to apologize or something. And so uh, that's when Billy Joe claims that the, you know, they, they get ready to go outside. And according to Billy Joe, the band leader hands the guy a gun. And the guy shoots at Billy Joe three times. And that's when Mike Judge has to step in and say, nope, witness accounts, police records and trial transcripts all agree. The man had a knife, not a gun. But <laughs> Billy Joe nonetheless right. pulls out his twenty two Derringer. Uh, shoots him right between the mother and the fucker, as he says, yes. and uh, and then goes on. He the says, "I realized I had to return fire." Exactly, <laughs> and so uh, and then that leads to the whole trial. And, and Dale Watson calls him and asks him if he can write a song about this, which comes back to haunt him in the trial. Connie Nelson brings in a lawyer who bails him out for fifty grand. They, they eventually. After he fires multiple lawyers who wanted to plead guilty, he hires the legendary Dick DeGarren, who's the lawyer to Tom DeLay, David Koresh, and Bobby Durst of HBO Infamy. And DeGarren gets him off. I know. And and it really it seems more like Billy Joe got himself off. I mean, they don't they don't cite any evidence of genius lawyering by DeGarren. 
just putting Billy Joe on the on the stand where he says, you know, uh, ma'am, I'm from Texas. I ain't no chicken shit on the stand. Yeah, you know, and it, and, it uh, reminds me of the uh, the great Texas defense, which is a legendary. Uh, there was a legendary lawyer in Texas. I can't remember his name. And he got a lot of people off of these charges. And the, the basis of his defense was, I'm not saying my client didn't shoot that guy. I'm saying that guy needed shooting. Exactly. Uh, uh, and there was a time where that really did fly in Texas. And evidently it's up to as recently as Billy Joe Shaver's trial. In the late 1980s. And I, honestly, I wouldn't go up against that defense right now if I was a prosecutor. Uh, it's going to be tough to get a conviction in Texas. Um, <laughs> so all's well that ends well. Billy Joe survives his celebrity trial and uh, is acquitted and and uh, rides off in the sunset. They sort of gloss over some of the later – the biggest tragedy in, uh, in Billy's later life was the death of his son, Eddie, who – it doesn't mention on the show, but Eddie was a great lead guitar player and played on Billy's albums from, I think, the early 1980s on, all the way up to his death on New Year's Eve 2000 uh, from a heroin overdose. So, um, you know, that's definitely a little heavy for the tone of the show. And so they kind of allude to it, but 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 move on. And so, yeah, they gloss um, right over it. Yeah, I mean, you know, they, they mention it, but don't don't dive into the into it and they also skip over what he meant for billy joe's career um because he he played on his columbia debut album i'm just an old chunk of coal and uh and and that was one of the big rewards for me of this show was checking out the billy joe's solo career and and his son eddie was definitely a pretty badass classic telecaster country guitar slinger um absolutely and co-wrote live forever with with billy joe yep and and uh so you know a bigger loss than they allude to so that's the basic plot summary um any commentary on the the speaker i think we've mentioned everybody i mentioned connie nelson Willie Nelson's third wife also comes in and Dick DeGaron comes in a little bit and the the echoes back to the Johnny Paycheck episode because of the trial uh, are pretty clear and, and and as in the Johnny Paycheck episode you know we hear from his band we hear from his attorney uh, we hear from his friends um, and this functions in the series very much like the Johnny Paycheck episode did in that it's a prequel to a two-parter just like Johnny Paycheck set up the George Jones and Tammy Wynette two-parter. Billy Joe sets up the two-part Will and Jennings episode. Yeah, that works really great. Yeah. And one thing I, I wanted to point out that uh, I kind of caught, I was re-watching it again today, and they sort of blame Dale Watson for putting the line in the song, Where Do You Want It?, which comes up at the trial, where yeah. they basically allege that... Uh, Billy Joe asked the guy where he wanted it before he shot him in the face. And, uh, but at one point before that, they show a picture of a newspaper article and I spotted in that newspaper article, the phrase, where do you want it? So it had been reported in the paper that Billy Joe had said that to the guy before shooting him. So I don't know that Dale should be entirely blamed for that. That's that's a good catch, and I'm glad you brought up that whole thing because the whole meta aspect of the song about the shooting coming up at the trial. I mean, it's as if you know you're at the the uh, 
trial of, uh, you know, Billy the Kid or something, and somebody's quoting the, the Bob Dylan song about him. I mean, it's very meta to have the, the song about the, the shooting published, out, released, recorded, and impacting uh, the testimony at the trial. is very meta, but, and you're making it, it even... It's also a wonderful sort of Texas tall tale type of situation. Absolutely, and and well worth immortalizing in Billy Joe's own song, Wacko from Waco, that they play. So um, there's a few more songs in this episode than there are in some of the others, <clears throat> but a couple of them get kind of short shrift. They, they, Billy Joe uh, opens it doing Old Five and Dimers Like Me, which is in the spot early in the episode where they really want to present, let you hear for yourself the power of this person's performance. And, and I think for Billy Joe, like his his own performances are a little bit of an acquired taste. And so the 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 one that really gets over the most is Waylon Jennings doing Honky Tonk Heroes. I mean it's it's Billy Joe's songs have reached enormous audiences and, and impacted people greatly, but generally when they're sung by people like Waylon Jennings or Johnny Cash or David Allen Coe, who are more traditional, powerful singers than Billy Joe. But um I think it's perfectly appropriate to to feature Billy Joe singing his own songs in, in this episode. But, you know, then they get uh, Hank Williams doing Move It On Over. Then they have Billy Joe uh, doing Black Rose. Then they have Waylon Jennings doing Honky Tonk Heroes, and they give that um, a pretty long feature. And then they have Dale Watson's uh, version of Where Do You Want It? <clears throat> and then a little bit, and that's a pr- fairly abbreviated, and then a fairly abbreviated version of Wacko from Waco by Billy Joe. And then they end it with Live Forever by Billy Joe, um, <clears throat> which is which is pretty good. Any thoughts on the song selection in the episode? Yeah, I think the way they started with the, I mean, Old Five and Dimers is a great song, but the greatest thing about it is those opening lines. Uh, and it's a really beautiful set of lyrics uh, in those first few words. And basically talking about trying to be a better person than what the world is going to see. And it sort of sets up the episode, both showing you here's a guy who's a great singer and songwriter. Here's some poetic stuff that he just said. And it relates to his personality that we're now about to learn about. So I think it was really beautifully done. I love the way Billy Joe sings. I'm with that guy. If people have a hate voice, I'm always on the left side, like idiosyncratic voices I'm all over it. So I love the way it started off with that. And I thought it was really beautifully done. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and, and I liked the uh, live forever at the end. I thought it was pretty powerful and a pretty good selection. Once again, this series is just highlighted by immaculate taste in the song selections and really clever in how they deploy the songs in the, in the service of the story as well. Um, so what was your favorite part of the episode? So you alluded to it earlier and said it was kind of your favorite part, but I, you know, when I watched it again today, my favorite part was definitely when the young Billy Joe climbs up, shimmies up the pole to watch Hank Williams. And you get to hear Hank Williams sing for a second, which just raises the hair on your arms. And then the the way that they sort of cut that and you see the young Billy Joe sort of like struck by lightning in his face. Uh, it was just a really powerful and beautiful moment and i thought that was my definitely my favorite part of it yeah and and you know sometimes i get angry if we're still in my favorite part but um 
I'll forgive you in this case. And, and my second favorite part, since you, since we both had the same favorite part, my second favorite part was Kinky Friedman's uh, contributions. I thought he was just hilarious and also t- touching and poignant because he's he's talking about a friend who he knows really well. And, and I liked his line about, um, you know, songwriting is, is uh, you know, being a songwriter is to sail as close to the truth as you can without sinking the ship. And I thought that was a pretty, pretty poignant quote. And, you know, Kinky's one of those people, like they say, never meet your heroes. And I actually worked for him for a while, and it was a disaster. So this series has actually kind of helped me uh, <laughs> regain my lifelong fondness for Kinky Freeman's work and forget uh, the unpleasantness of dealing with a person. So um, what was your favorite song? I guess we already covered that. Yeah, I mean, I I'm, for me, it would have to be the, the beginning with Old Five and Nightmares, though. Also, the way that they outro the show with Live Forever, which is such a, that's a real anthemic recording of that song with the beautiful guitar playing. Uh, it's, you know, it, they were wonderful bookends to the episode. Yeah, I have to agree. And I think that the Wayland's version of Honky Tonk Heroes in the Middle is a great pillar to build the musical selection. Because, you know, like millions of other people, I mean, I memorized honky tonk heroes growing up my older brothers always played it it was a you know fourth of july just favorite it was just a staple of summertime in my in my family growing up and so that's how i it was very jarring when i learned that somebody else wrote those songs when i first heard billy joe's versions um it was very hard for me to to accept that it wasn't Waylon. but eventually i did learn to appreciate billy joe's version but i still love that classic version of Waylon Jennings and it sets us up, you know, next week we'll be talking about the Waylon Jennings two-parter and, and there's just something about the greatness of Waylon Jennings as a performer that comes through that, that Billy Joe for all his gifts just can't compare. I mean, he's just not, you know, the legendary Waylon Jennings. Um, yeah, not many can compare with Waylon. No, no. I mean, you know, this is the king of kings of outlaw country. The only one who can go up against him would be Willie himself. Um, so what was the funniest part? This episode was kind of low-key funny the whole time, and there weren't as many sort of laugh-out-loud moments as some of the other ones. But for me, the time that I actually laughed out loud was at the beginning. It's Mike Judge setting up the episode, and he does the little, and like all the other episodes so far, he shot a guy. And just that perfect deadpan Mike Judge just, you know, dropping the hammer. It's just so good. And I laughed out loud the first time I heard it. Yeah, that one. And then the moment when Judge stops the show to to clarify that, you know, even though Billy Joe is saying that the guy had a gun and shot at him three times, that the police, the court records, and all the eyewitnesses agree, the guy only had a knife. Those were the two funniest parts. But like you said, there's just a general good humor about the whole episode. I mean, I think the whole cosmic cowboy phenomenon is pretty hilarious. And, and uh, anybody who's familiar with that scene knows that it's funny. It's just, there's something about hillbillies on acid that is just inherently hilarious. Um, <laughs> so what was the saddest part of the episode? Well, you go first. This is that way. That way I can't steal your, your oh, thunder. I see. I see. Well, to me, uh, the saddest part is a little bit off stage and that it's it's the the tragedy of his his childhood and and the story that kinky friedman told about his father you know nearly killing him in the womb and his mother abandoning him based on his gender although you know who can blame her after after dealing with a man like that like bringing another man in the world's got to be a difficult thing to do so 
that's the saddest part. And, and then, and then the death of his son, which again was pretty elliptical in the episode. Yeah, they they really glossed over it, but that's definitely the saddest part for me. Uh, you know, just the you know, especially the when you've worked artistically with your own son, and that's got to be so rewarding. And then, you know, his life is just wasted so senselessly. It's really sad. And I actually, when I was researching this, I realized there's a uh, a song written by singer songwriter Todd Snyder called "Waco Moon" that is about the death of Eddie. And I would suggest anyone who's listened this far and is interested enough in, in all this to go listen to that song. Cause it kind of adds a little, adds a little something to that story. Cool. I will definitely check that out. Yeah. It's, uh, um, that's part of the greatness of this stuff is just going down the rabbit trails and, and enhancing your knowledge. And, and that's kind of magic of our eras. The internet lets you, just dive in and do all this research so quick. And so do we like Billy Joe? It is amazing. Of course we like Billy Joe. We love Billy Joe. Like he's just a total delight. Yeah. I mean, this is the kind of guy, I'm sure he's a handful to deal with um, on the day to day. (laughs) And you wouldn't want to get crosswise with him in a bar fight um, or as a roommate, (laughs) pulling knives on him and such. But, but, Unlike some of the folks in the series, I mean, yeah, he's 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 funny and he's charming, and uh, the guys he's fighting are big, tough dudes like himself. And it's um, there's none of that Jerry Lee Lewis picking on people kind of aspect to it. Um, you know, Billy Joe's the little guy, the underdog, and definitely love going along the ride uh, for his his struggles um, and triumphs, and then. Recommended listening. Um, I think obviously "Honky Tonk Heroes" by Will and Jennings is is the the foundational text for Billy Joe. But um, as part of the research for this, um, I, I came across and really enjoyed listening to "Old Five and Dimers Like Me," which is his first album. Uh, Chris Christopherson produced in 1973 on Monument, and then his first Columbia album. I'm just an old chunk of coal, uh, and that's the one that features Eddie Shaver on guitar. And then uh, there's a great Razor and Tie uh, 18-song compilation called Restless Wind that's got good liner notes, and uh, and it was worth ordering from Amazon uh, for me. Have you checked any of those out, or you got any other recommendations? Yeah, so when I was uh, listening, and, and like you, like I hadn't listened to a whole ton of Billy Joe. I was very familiar with, you know, who he was, you know, growing, being in Austin all this time, but... Uh, really going back and spending some time listening to his music, I, I came across pretty much the same stuff you did and agree those are the records to listen to. The one that I also really enjoyed was called Storyteller, Live at the Bluebird, which is uh, a live recording of an acoustic set. Uh, and it's just, it's got, you know, all, a lot of the same songs, but just uh, delivered in a really charming and sort of uh, intimate setting. Uh, I think it's a great uh, sort of compliment to the ones that you already uh, offered up. Cool. I will definitely check that one out. And so where does this episode fit into the series? Um, I think we already covered that. It sets up the, the Billy Joe, but sets up the Whale and Jennings two-parter. But where do you see it thematically in the series? Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because, you know, like we've said, it's sort of one of the more lighthearted ones. Uh, there's there's tragedy in there, but but it's sort of presented 
the whole episode is presented in a relatively upbeat way. And I think it's a little bit of a break, uh, after, you know, some of the real intense stuff that we've seen so far. And I think it's, it's a nice little breather in a way. And like you said, it also sets us up, uh, ideally for Waylon. Yeah. And that's, uh, what we'll be talking about next time on the show. So Justin, thanks very much. It's been a hoot and we'll be back next week Thank to you. finish this discussion with some Waylon Jennings. Uh, and then a we'll pleasure have pleasure as always. All right. And so, uh, come back and listen again next time we let it roll. Thanks everybody. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at LetItRollCast. Come back next Monday when R.J. Smith drops by to talk about James Brown and his biography, The One. And come back next Thursday as Nate and Justin will be back to talk more Tales from the Tour Bus featuring Waylon Jennings. Tales from the Tour Bus can be viewed on Amazon.com if you subscribe to Cinemax. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.